Welcome, welcome to Night Shift with Andrea Up Late. Hey, everybody. I will go on and tell you right now that we have a storm of brewing here outside of the studio. So if you either, uh, if we lose power or if we, uh, if you see like a limb come across like the room in front of my face, just, just know that we'll be back up and running as soon as possible. I am joined tonight uh, with BC Sanders, who is co-host of Disruptors Podcast with BC and Ski. Hello, BC. How you doing? Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Anytime. <laughs> if you guys don't know, BC is a retired homicide lieutenant. And so he has a lot of wonderful expertise and insight when we talk about these cases. If you're a first-time listener, Night Shift is a true crime podcast. So uh, listeners beware in that sense, but otherwise it's a run-of-the-mill true crime. We do like to focus on unsolved cases um, as much as possible. That's not the only thing that we talk about here, but often it is. Uh, I'm always interested in cases that are solved because someone's memory is jogged or someone, you know, DNA is explored um, with new technology, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always interesting to talk about these cases and we always think about the families. Uh, while we do so. So in saying that, we will be talking tonight about a case right here out of North Carolina, um, the disappearance of a little girl back in the year 2000, Asha Degree. Uh, now, this is a case that BC and I haven't covered together for the show, but I have in season one of Night Shift covered, the, um, covered this case. So I am looking forward to talking to BC about it, um, and as always, hearing what you guys have to say. If you are a first-time listener, also, this is a live YouTube show that airs weekly on Tuesday nights at 8, 7 Central, uh, and it's called Night Shift with Andrea Up Late, and you can just search YouTube accordingly for that. So if you're just listening, though, on uh, Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts, know that you can always watch the live version on YouTube, but also know that we occasionally will engage with the chats. We have friends who hop on. Uh, just listeners of the show, uh, friends and family as well. But, you know, if there are questions to be asked or maybe sometimes a point that we hadn't considered, we will tend to engage those as the show goes on. So if you're just listening, know that sometimes that's what we might be doing. But uh, how you doing? Hey there, I see Kathy in the chats. Hey, Teresa, mm -hmm. Carly, Davey, David. Mm -hmm. So have you had a good week? Me? I've had a wonderful week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Mm -hmm. Um getting a lot done and just kind of also relaxing. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about cases here and there that we're not going to share with anybody yet, but we have one that we're not disclosing. <laughs> yes. I'm so hyper-focused. It's the only thing I can think about. Um, and it's making it difficult to, to cover the cases that I'm covering weekly here. Yeah. So the conversations kind of just go like, uh, off the bat, like a phone call, Hey, so what about this? And then yeah. you go right into yeah. it. Yeah, or throughout the work day, just a text. We've started yeah. calling the case by certain initials, and so I'll just throw a text out. That way I can get kind of a running, keep a running tally on what we're talking about. But uh, we will we will bring that one to you one day in probably many installments. But uh, we're super pumped. Uh, and Carly has, let's go on and get this one. Let's go on and answer this Carly's yeah. question real fast about the U of I murder. She's talking about the University of Idaho Guys, if you remember, of course you remember if you listen to the news at all, the horrible, horrible slayings of the four college students in Idaho. 
<clears throat> and we've got a listener in the chats right now with a question for BC about that. What you got, Carly? You got five seconds. Four, three, two, one. Hey, Brittany. Okay, she says, why on earth would they allow the house to be demoed before the trial starts? Now, BC, you and I have not talked about that, but just about maybe two weeks ago, a week or two ago, the house, um, the, the, the community, the college and town had taken the house back. Um, and the owner kind of was like, do what you will with it. You know, mm -hmm. I want nothing to do with this. It was horrible. And they did to go on and decide to demolish, uh, the home there. So yeah. her question, uh, if you're listening is why would they have demolished that home if they've not yet started the trial with, uh, Brian Koberger, who is the one currently convicted of those slings. Yeah, every state's a little different, but usually like an investigation, whatever property you seize is evidence. So it can be cars. Um, that's probably the largest. You, you normally don't seize a house, obviously, for evidence. Uh, so probably what is going on is the original owner, whatever they had to do uh, to demolish it, sell it, do whatever. Um, but you can't or usually you don't hold property as actual evidence, but you can seize a car if the car is part of, of the murder and that car actually stays in police evidence, which causes people a huge problem when the suspect or victim doesn't own the car. When someone borrows a car <laughs> yeah. and goes and commits a drive-by yeah. or commits a crime, now then, you're without a car. Then, yeah, yeah, then police seize the car and then the car owner's like, yeah, but that's my car. So then they gotcha. have to work that out using with their insurance companies and the insurance companies aren't too happy. So your answer would just be that likely they've gotten everything they need from the house. Yes. There's nothing, yeah, nothing so more when, that they would come back yeah, to. Yeah, when they serve that search, well, I'm assuming, I don't know whether they serve a search warrant or not, but if they serve the search warrant, they processed the house, videoed, photographed, whatever they did, and processed it. Once they release that house and everybody clears out of there, uh, then the homeowner can do whatever they want to do with it. It's nice if the house is still there and for some reason down the road, you need to do something additional. But usually the mindset is when we're done with the crime scene and we're we out, we're not everything. going back. Yeah. Like we have to be thorough and we have to do everything. And that's why sometimes houses or clubs or whatever the crime scene is can be held for days on end because you want to process sure. it thoroughly and make sure you get everything. But yeah. Precisely why, if you've not listened to the Ellen Greenberg case, part one or part two, you should go back and listen because this is one where uh, the house was turned over quickly and BC and I had that discussion in talking about that case because my frustration was that as a layman, as someone not in law enforcement, that felt soon to me in, in the Ellen Greenberg case out of Philadelphia, I believe, um, that seemed very soon to me. And his point was just that, that if they cleared it, it's because they were, if they turned it over, they had no need to hold it any longer. They got everything they needed. And then we find out when we get into that case that they kind of had not gotten anything. And so um, that was a frustration there. And by then it had been um, obviously contaminated at that point. But that's a great question, Carly. Uh, and this is precisely why we like to engage in the uh, chats. So with that, would you like to go on and get into our case for tonight? Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Y'all, I'm if you're it, watching, huh? No, let's say the conversation came up recently, and so that's what I was saying that, yeah, about this case, you know, um, and kind of our discussion. So, yeah, yeah, we were, um, we a family member actually brought the case up and and asked about it, and we got to talking about it again. And it was, it's, uh, 
interesting, you know, is a word for it, but it's just, um, Anyway, it's unsolved. So it's it's like we talk just about every week uh, with some of these unsolved. It's it's frustrating and it's tough. And like I said, it happened to it happened in the year two thousand. So we're actually it was February of two thousand. So we are pushing twenty four years um, at this case. So without further ado, let's go on and talk about uh, Asha Degree. So <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and I will put up pictures as always uh, tomorrow on my Instagram on Andrea Plate of. Of Asha, of you know any pictures that would be uh, that this case would um, have connected to it. So <clears throat> Asha Degree was born on August fifth of nineteen ninety. She was born in Shelby, North Carolina. Her parents were Akila and Harold. She had a brother O'Brien, who I believe was about eleven months older than she was, and they all lived there together in the family home. They had a lot of uh, extended family nearby. I believe Asha's grandmother actually lived across the street and she had other aunts and uncles that lived just in the surrounding neighborhoods. So they had a very supportive family and a, a good bit of extended family very close by. Um, <clears throat> they were a Christian family that attended church every week. They went to the Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church and that was in Waco, North Carolina. And evidently she had a weekly Bible study group, Asha did, that she really liked. And she she would go to there every week for children. So, you know, sources kind of differ in that people will say that her parents were very, very strict or that she was very, very sheltered. She was nine years old and her brother was like 10 and a half, almost 11. So these were young children. Uh, I think that that's a subjective thought. So um, if you consider them too strict or too sheltered because they just weren't allowed to be like on the Internet for without a purpose. They weren't allowed, which at that time there wasn't a lot to do, a whole lot to do on the Internet anyway in the mm -hmm. year 2000. Um, they couldn't uh, take their bikes outside of their own neighborhood, X, Y, Z. To me, it just points to parents who paid attention and were keeping a close watch on their children. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So the kids actually kind of knew their role in the home. So mom and dad both worked full time. And so Monday through Friday, Asha and O'Brien would get home from school on the school bus and then they would come home and they knew that their rules were to finish their homework and complete whatever chores were assigned to them that day uh, before they could play or go outside or anything. And it sounds like from all accounts, they did so willingly. Um, mom, Akila worked at this place called the Kaiwai, Kaiwai, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Industry Corporation. I guess she was a piano maker. I'm not sure what part, how, you know, she had in that, but, uh, she worked, it was like a nine to fiver, but Harold's hours were a bit, um, not quite as scheduled. He was a second shift dock loader and sometimes his schedule would get flipped or he'd have to work extra hours or whatnot. So his sleep could kind of be funny with that. Uh, Asha was a fourth grader in the year 2000 at Fallon Elementary School. <clears throat> Excuse me. She was described as um, a sweet, kind child. She was pretty reserved. She was kind of shy, but she was starting this year to kind of branch out and kind of get a little bit more independent with things, get into some new hobbies and take on some interests that uh, almost surprised her, her parents. Hey, Abby. Uh, so she was named student of the week very often. And so when she did so, you could pick uh, a, a toy from the teacher's chest. Did you have something like that when you were a kid? I did. And I probably never got anything out of the chest because I was just quiet. You weren't ever student of the week? Not when, no, no, not when I was young. <clears throat> In high school. He one was time. quiet. Did y'all hear that? 
Breaking news. <laughs> in, in elementary school, I was very, very quiet. Uh, kindergarten got counted absent twice. They called home to tell my mom that I was not in school. Where were you? I was in school. Oh, because you were quiet? Because I was so quiet. They like, you know, when they do like attendance or whatever. Like you didn't even tell them you were there. Apparently not. But <laughs> around eighth grade, I started talking. Coming out of your show. And I haven't stopped since then. Well, we did have a chest and particularly in Miss Castleman's second grade class. Mm-hmm. If you got certain grades or did certain things, you could acquire, um, she called them magic beans. They were coffee beans. There and you go. Get the kids started on coffee at a young age. And so, well, you, but you, they were like your tokens, right? Okay. So you'd get your little tokens and you'd collect them. And then every week you could choose to either cash those in for a prize out of the chest or save them for like the big prize, mm. like w- whenever mm-hmm. that would occur. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, saved mine because I knew what the big prize was. I'm a little impulsive and I probably wouldn't have saved them. Otherwise I would have wanted to cash them in every week, but yeah. I knew what the big prize was. Uh, I should probably put it as part of my backdrop because I still have it. Um, mm. It's rolled up in my closet and the big prize was a Patrick Swayze, dirty dancing poster. I was going to guess uh new kids. No, but, okay. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And so Miss Castleman knew what those second grade girls. I was about to say, hold up. Second grade of Patrick Swayze poster. Yeah. Dirty dance. Yeah. His shirt was like unbuttoned (laughs) because it's dirty dance. So she's giving you coffee and showing you. Yeah. Patrick Swayze. All right. No. So that's what I, uh, that's what I won. Um, Yeah. Still got it. We'll put it. It can be the night shift that job. <laughs> no, I, I like that. Oh, like <clears throat> uh, don't worry. I have plenty of new kids paraphernalia as well. Uh, so this actually, uh, this actually makes a difference in this case a little bit. Uh, it will, it'll play out a little bit later on as we're discussing it. But that week when she was able to choose a prize from the treasure box, she picked um, a black Tweety Bird purse from that treasure chest, and she was really excited about that, and so she used it a whole lot. Uh, so she eventually, though, decided that she wanted to play basketball, and that surprised her parents a little bit, but she did. She wanted to be in a five-point guard. She loved it. She played with a lot of other little girls on this league, um, and it was the the Falston Bulldogs, and uh, she liked to sing as well, but that's just a little bit personally about Asha and and kind of her childhood a little bit. She was known to be fearful of a lot of things. Um, and if I say thunderstorms or the dark, we could say that that's pretty, that's a pretty common trend among children, but she was like notably terrified of thunderstorms in the dark. So she didn't want to go near windows during thunderstorms. She did not like for lights to be out. She liked a lamp to be on these kinds of things. She would get very upset. She was actually very, very straight afraid of strangers as well. Um, and she wouldn't really open the door a whole lot, like her front door, meaning even if it was like extended family members, she didn't prefer to go to the door if it was knocked on. So, uh, these things are going to be important to keep in the back of your head as we talk about this case, because there are some different theories as what might've happened, uh, leading up to Asha leaving her home. Okay. So on Sunday, excuse me. Sunday, February 13th of 2000, uh, it was a very typical Sunday. The degrees went to church. But prior to that, 
was a pretty packed weekend. So that Friday night, she had a basketball game. Uh, some will talk about this and, and kind of find this cause for her going missing. Uh, we'll come back to that as well. But on Friday night, her basketball game, I guess she fouled out. Uh, they wound up losing the game. But when she was fouled out, she got very upset and she was crying a lot. Her mom will say that she comforted her and she bounced back pretty quickly and kind of sat in the bleachers and ate candy until the game was over. Um, some will kind of harken back on that, her being upset about the game, and we'll talk about it. Personally, I feel like it bears no no weight here. Um, but so Friday night was that. Then Saturday, they had um, they went and hung out with family and did some things there. Saturday night, she actually had a sleepover with some of her girlfriends, and they will say that they stayed up most of the night. They were up very, very late. Uh, she and I think it was like twelve girlfriends and cousins or what. Like it was a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of little girls. So I think a lot of chatter and a late night for them all. So then that makes a difference because wrapping around to Sunday, February thirteenth, her parents pick her up at her friend's house in the morning. You know the slumber party stumble out the door happens. And they go to their typical 11 o'clock service that they always went to. So they go, they go to the um, service. They get home because Harold had to get ready for work. Like I said, he worked second shift at that dock. So she was exhausted when she got home because they had been up all night at that sleepover. Um, so she ended up actually laying down and taking a nap in her bed and kind of like woke up around 630 in the evening. So it sounds like she might have been a little... Um, you know, discombobulated mm -hmm. there. It's kind of a weird weekend, not a lot of sleep, some weird hours of a nap time. So uh, she, oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry. She did not take a nap. She fell asleep at 6.30 p.m. So this was considerably earlier than her normal bedtime. But at 8.30, a thunderstorm rolled through. And so around 8.30, she woke up to the loud thunder. So since she was scared of thunderstorms, she left... Uh, her bedroom and went out into the living room and there her mom Akila and her brother O'Brien were watching TV. So she laid down on the couch with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they said that when Asha came into the living room, she had on her jeans and a white t-shirt. So she had on what she had had on that afternoon. Um, all of these things matter. And about a half an hour later, it was about just before 9 p.m., was a car that crashed into a utility pole nearby. So this rendered them without electricity, them and like whoever else was on that grid right there around their neighborhood. So because of this, uh, they didn't get the normal bath they would get before bed. Uh, Mom had actually gone in to draw the bath just prior to this car hitting the telephone pole and just said, you know what, guys, go get ready for bed. We'll just take baths before school in the morning. Don't worry about it. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe um, they actually went on to bed, but that power was restored around 12 or 1230 that night. So around midnight, the power came back on. So they went on to bed. Uh, they shared a bedroom. So Asha and O'Brien each had a bed in the same bedroom and they went to sleep. So Harold finally gets off around 11 p.m. that night from the docks. So there are a couple Sources say a couple of different things. They say he either came home and then he left to go to the store real quick to grab Valentine's candy. Um, some people will say it was for like to get flowers for his wife and things for his kids. Some will say it's because the kids needed Valentine's candy for their parties at school the next day. Uh, and then some sources say that he did that first and then came home. Uh, these are things that don't ultimately, I think, matter um, as the case winds up. But you will 
maybe read conflicting stories there. But either way, he did get the candy and he was home around the time the power was restored, like midnight or 1230. <clears throat> so <clears throat> here, excuse me, Harold gets home. The power's back on. He checks on the kids. Here's where reports differ a little bit as well. There are some that say that that Asha was still asleep on the living room couch at this point um, at 1230. And he told her to get up and go to bed. Uh, other reports say that he checked on them and they were both in their bed when he got home. This isn't him being um, like not factual or changing his story. It's just the way people have reported on it kind of a little bit differently in some of those details. So he checks on the kids. Uh, they are doing just fine. They are asleep in their bed. Now, O'Brien, who, like I said, shares a bedroom with his sister, Asha, will say that around the time, it would have been about that time dad got home, he heard Asha get up and go to the restroom. Uh, he kind of rolls over, his eyes are shut, and then he hears her bed springs again, assuming she just got back in bed. He will say then later he heard her bed springs another time in the middle of the night, but he didn't kind of like wake up for it or see her or think much about it. Um, but that would be his account of being in the same room with her, what he says he heard. Um, which, I mean, I'm thinking if you ask my kids, did you hear what your brother was doing at 3 a.m.? Or I mean, there, right. there's yeah. no way. But he did say that he heard her bed squeak. So maybe he was kind of a lighter sleeper. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So the next morning around 545, their mom, Akila, gets up and starts to kind of do the Monday morning rush. And she's going through the house and getting food ready and these kinds of things. And she's going on to draw their bath. They're having to get up a little bit earlier because remember they didn't have their nighttime showers like they normally would have. So she turns on the bath water and then goes to get the kids up. Well, when she does, she sees O'Brien asleep in his bed, but Asha was nowhere to be found. She wasn't in the bedroom. So she kind of like, you know, goes through the house, is not too alarmed at first, goes into the living room. She kind of checks every room and then she kind of like peeps out the door. She doesn't see her anywhere. So she goes back and starts to kind of quickly get dressed while she's telling Harold, her husband, that she can't find Asha anywhere. And so he says to go check outside or, you know, maybe whatever. She's gone to grandmother's house who, remember, lives across the street. Uh, so she goes outside. She looks in their own car. She looks across the street. She calls her mother who says that Asha is not over there. And now she's starting to get a little panicked. And if I'm not mistaken, she actually tosses the phone to Harold and asks him to call 911 because none of this would be typical Asha behavior. Um, the doors, by the way, were locked. So the doors were all locked. Um, nothing looked awry at the home whatsoever. So she can't find her anywhere. Harold calls the police at 6.39 a.m. There just happened to be a patrol car right there in the neighborhood. So at 6.42 a.m., this is everywhere, at 6.42 a.m., a patrol car uh, actually pulls up to the driveway. So like three minutes later, someone's there rapidly, which was fantastic. He tells, um, uh, the dispatcher what was going on. Uh, he talks, he talks about her black Tweety bird purse. Remember that she won in her, uh, student of the week, uh, teacher's chest. And he said he wasn't sure what she had on when she left or what she would have gone to do or what she had with her or anything like that. So, that first police officer, like I said, gets there just as soon as he calls 911. About 15 minutes later, they say that it looked like the, quote, entire town of Shelby was there. This was a very quick response and a large one. They took mm -hmm. this very seriously from the get-go and had the resources uh, to do so. So they get there very quickly. By 7 a.m., 
more officers, and this would be the Cleveland County Sheriff's Department in Shelby, North Carolina, uh, show up. We already have reporters and news stations there, newspaper journalists. We have other investigators from the State Bureau of Investigation get there in the next couple of hours, search and rescue personnel, um, volunteers. I mean, it really grew big uh, very, very quickly. We know that canines were brought in uh, at least initially and unfortunately forevermore were unable to pick up Asha's scent. Uh, so there's, and I remember covering this the first time I talked about this case, but there's some misconception on canines and I can ask you a little bit about that as well, but that um, some people think that because it had been such a rainstorm, like such a torrential downpour overnight, which it had been, by the way, that thunderstorm lasted throughout the entire evening, that that would have like, quote, like washed away her scent or made it more difficult for the canines to pick up on her. Um, we've learned since though that science doesn't actually work that way, that sometimes that rain can enhance the scent and the smell for the dog. So they actually can sometimes pick up on more uh, with the humidity of the air, which to me kind of makes sense because mm -hmm. um, I like my, ha my hair will smell like things, a fire or whatever, like mm -hmm. we're around. But if, if it's a warmer, like a more humid, I think that it holds on to scent a little bit more. It, it depends on what type of training the canine has had. This is the way it's been explained to me. I was never a canine handler. Right. Uh, I know two or three that were pretty incredible. The way they explained it, when you're tracking like from like that, like a house to wherever she went, mm -hmm. they would be tracking like crushed vegetation. So that's okay. where sometimes they say, well, it's raining out. You're not going to get that, that crushed vegetation because everything is wet. It's the way it's been explained to me now. There's probably some people are going to listen to this and scream and yell because they're canine handlers and right. they can get into more of that. But the way I understand it, it's like the dogs are kind of trained for certain things. So like in the movies, when they show uh, the fugitives running and they got like a ripped off piece of the, the um, clothing mm -hmm. or something, they let like the bloodhound yeah. smellers. I don't know anything about that. I've never been around sure. necessarily dogs that are tracking since like that. It's always been fresh fugitive or, or something like this where a kid has walked off and what you're looking for is um a scene or an area that's undisturbed like so they're three or smelling four the actual more. vegetation rather yes. than the scent of the human yes they're just tracking what has been crushed so if all of a sudden officers and everybody starts flooding the area the way canine officers have told me they're like well now you you've kind of contaminated because you've got multiple people okay. walking in different directions so I wonder what they're and picking up on. And this is kind of a, this is beside the point, but you know, what would they be picking up on if, and this may sound silly, but like, like in a city, like if it's um, from this block to that block and you're no. concrete jungle. Yeah. I mean, at what point do they do, would they use like the clothing of the victim or the missing person? And <laughs> that from what I understand, that's but I know this were, isn't your wheelhouse. Yeah, but they would bring that. they would bring in a dog like that and then be able to smell something that, that in this case, something she wore. So maybe that's what I guess I'm saying, and I know yeah. we're getting in the weeds with it, no pun intended, but maybe they weren't tracking necessarily through the vegetation in that sense as much as searching for like her her scent. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Now that we've solved that problem, now that we're experts on canine handling. <laughs> Um, so around noon that day, so this is again, February 14th. This is Monday, 2000, the year 2000, um, uh, at 12 PM North Carolina highway patrol helicopter had been deployed to search the area. 
So when I say they were using all their resources, I mean, this is certainly we talk mm -hmm. about cases where either the uh, law enforcement is can sometimes just be inexperienced. Sometimes we verge on the idea of neglectful. Sometimes it's amazing. This is definitely in the category of amazing. They really used everything that they had and quickly went to town on this. So they used that helicopter. Uh, and then around 2 p.m., that afternoon, the SBI taped off their home. They did allow Asha's parents and brother to go in and out because they had nothing to suspect foul play from within the home. Nothing had been forced. There was no broken or forced entry, uh, nothing suspicious in the home mm -hmm. whatsoever. So the family was um, allowed to, you know, kind of meander inside and outside, but no one else was allowed inside. So again, remember that all of the doors were locked when Akila and Harold mm -hmm. woke up that morning. So they can't, because of that, determine whether or not Asha left through the front door or the back door because um, nothing was left unlocked. So, so that's the day. So that day just goes on. There are more and more news stories now. It's being heavily covered uh, by law enforcement and journalists at this point. Mom and dad are just giving over any information they have, anything they think can help. Um, and then we start getting to some tips and some some call-ins to investigators. So one tip was called in by a 25-year-old man named Jeff Rupi. So Jeff was a trucker for the, he was a trucker. No, Jeff was cleared. It's fine. We're not worried about Jeff. But Jeff was a short-haul trucker for Sundrop Bottling Company. So he didn't really take these long national trucking routes. He just worked for Sundrop. If you remember Sundrop or still drink it. Uh, and he worked for that bottling company. So he said that at around 345 that morning, he'd been on his just normal delivery route. Uh, he was going northbound on Highway 18. So North Carolina Highway 18 would be the highway that traversed in front of Asha's home. So when you leave her driveway and turn a corner, that is the main highway. Um, it's the only road there, actually. And he said that around 345 that morning, he saw a young girl in pigtails wearing a white dress. He called it a white dress, white tennis shoes and a backpack. And she was walking southbound on Highway 18. OK, so where he says he saw her would put her about about a mile, 1.3 miles, depending from her home. He thought it was really strange. That a little girl would be by herself at that hour, obviously. Also, keep in mind when we talk about these um, these tips and these call-ins about this, it was pouring down rain. I need you to keep that in mind the whole show because that's going to be important for a few different things when it comes to Asha. So he sees her going back kind of the other way, and he just, you know, got that spidey sense. Like, he didn't like mm -hmm. the feeling in his gut of what he saw. So he actually, as soon as he could turned around and went back the other way to try to flag her down, try to, you know, just figure out what was going on. So he says that when he drove by her, he was, he slowed down and was going slowly and that she had her eyes forward. And his words were that she looked like she was quote on a mission. Like she wouldn't look, I think he flashed his lights, might've honked his horn. If I remember from the first time I went over this case, but she wouldn't, be disturbed by him. Mm -hmm. um, so he turned his truck around again, headed back the way he had originally been going. And he decided to try to call out to her. And when he did, he said that she ran off into the fog um, and toward like a wooded area and he could no longer see her. 
So he didn't think much about it. I think he just kind of went on about his route that night and his work. But excuse me, later on that day, he was eating lunch and he saw he was watching TV and saw her face on the news. And as soon as he saw her, he recognized her as being the little girl that he had seen walking down mm -hmm. the road. So he called in um, police to tell him exactly that. So there was another tip that came in soon after by Roy Blanton Sr. So Roy was actually a former deputy of the Cleveland County Sheriff's Department there in that same county. OK, so he and his son, Roy Blanton Jr., were finishing up their trucking run and were driving northbound on North Carolina Highway 18 that morning. And they say that they spotted Asha around 415 that morning. So about 30 minutes after the report of when Jeff Rupi said he saw her. OK, so where they said they saw her was closer to 1.3, 1.5 miles away from her home. So this is about 0.3 to 0.5 miles farther than where Jeff Ruby had seen her from her home. And this was about 30 minutes later in pouring down rain. So let's say about a half a mile difference. That would make that would make sense. 0.3 to 2.5. Um, he said he saw her close to the intersection between highways 18 and 180. Um, if you look at a map, this all makes a lot of sense. There wasn't a lot else going on there. There was it was a pretty rural area. A lot of I would consider a lot of Shelby, North Carolina, still a very mm -hmm. rural area. Um, oh, that's where I mentioned staying at that motel that time because it needed to be able to have animals. And I was traveling. I had oh, the dog yeah. and the yeah, hamster yeah. Jerry Stewart with me. Mm -hmm. um, so Roy, uh, Roy Sr., again, the former deputy, reported that they saw a small person in white clothing walking down the side of the highway. He thought it was odd, but he thought it was just like a small woman. And he thought maybe like a domestic violence situation or something like that. And she was trying to be on her way. So he didn't think quite as much about it. I think he didn't get as good of a look as Jeff Rupi had gotten when he immediately knew it was a child and like felt kind of yucky about it. Uh, Roy didn't necessarily think that to be the case, but he saw white, a, a white top at least is what he thought he saw. And he would, he described her as a small person. Um, again, he thought it was a woman. They didn't stop to check on her, but and this will get into some theories that people have later, but he and his son did actually call in on the radio. They were in a truck, like a, like an 18 wheeler. And they did call into the radio uh, to other truckers in the area to urge them to keep an eye out. So no one ended up hitting her. He was concerned that whoever this was would be hit by a car because of the pouring down rain. And they were walking so close to the, to the mm -hmm. sideline of the road. So later on, they stopped in Falston, North Carolina, and ultimately, Roy and his son were headed to Chicago on this route. So he called his wife just to check in. And then she tells him of this news story that she's heard um, all day that day. And it was about this little girl who had gone missing. And so when he when she tells him about it the next day, Roy and his son start his wheels kind of start turning and he drives down back down to Shelby and reports what they had seen in person at the sheriff's department there. Um they actually then set up a command post at Moles Memorial Baptist Church. So now they're really starting to engage with the community um, and try to see what anybody at all could have seen. So, you know, so mom and dad, Harold and Akila, were given polygraphs, questioned thoroughly. I think very quickly they were dismissed as anyone of interest. Uh, law enforcement was not worried about them at all in this Um 
it also seemed to be that Asha had left of her own free will because, like I said, there was no forced entry. The doors were all locked, which was bizarre. It did cause them a little confusion, but there was no reason to suspect that she had been taken from her home um, in, in any kind of way. So the next day, it's February 15th now on a Tuesday. Okay. So a large, like a big old group of volunteers has gathered. Again, keep in mind, there were news reports everywhere the first day. So this tiny town already knows they, they, they all know what's going on and they really want to help. So a bunch of volunteers get together. Um, I mean, basically at daybreak and they start to search, they, they form their own volunteer search and rescue party. Okay. So this gets a little confusing because sometimes they're not having the best um, communication with law enforcement. So we've got the civilians trying to help doing their thing. We've got law enforcement doing their thing. Um, and they're not really overlapping in terms of communication at this point. It's very early on still. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the volunteers get together and want to go kind of down Highway 18. They already knew about the tips that had come in. So they check out this residence right there off of Highway 18. Um, that's about a mile south of Asha's home. All right. So this, like I said, it's a bit rural. These are larger plots of land, generally speaking, where she lived. Uh, so this property was actually owned by a man named Charles Turner. He owned an upholstery company there in town. And he and his wife, his wife's name was Rally. He had a daughter, Debbie, and they all three lived there at that residence. So Rally, the mom, and Debbie um, actually were approached by the volunteer civilian searchers uh, there on the 15th. They tell, um, the searchers tell Rally and her daughter all about Asha, how she had disappeared. They asked if they had seen anything. They had not. And they asked politely if they could search their property for any kind of signs. And so they immediately agreed. They had no problem with that. So there were like three outbuildings on their property, the home. And like I said, a decent plot of land and like some sheds and lean tos and things like that on the back of the property. So in one of the outbuildings, they actually find kind of an assortment of different items. They found the Turners. So not the search and rescue people, but the rally and Debbie, the mom and daughter, they kind of start looking with them. And so they, in their own outbuilding find um, a white 1996 Atlanta Olympics pencil some candy wrappers, so just like like kind of interspersed on the ground there, candy wrappers, um, a green marker, a yellow hair, um, some reports will say a bow, but when you see a picture of it, it was like a plastic, those little plastic like barrette clips, um, and a wallet-sized picture of a young black female. Now, Asha Degree is a young black female, so the Turners don't know what Asha looks like and presume this child, who appears to be the same age as Asha, to be her. Um, but the next day, it, time had gone on here. So the next day, the Turners took that picture to uh, the police. So they didn't bring all the rest of the stuff they had found, but they just brought that picture. They didn't think too much about the other things just yet, which that kind of surprises me. I feel like that's a little weird, like if they don't mm -hmm. belong to you. But either way, so they take the picture into police. Uh, the police show the picture to Akila and Harold, and they not only say that this is not Asha, but they don't know who this child is, this picture. And I will put this on Instagram as well tomorrow. Um, so everyone at this point has no idea the connection of this little girl to Asha. But either way, um, I will tell you that the child in that photograph has yet to be identified. We, st we mm -hmm. still don't know who that child is. Um, so when Rally and Debbie, these neighbors, right, south of Asha's home, realized that that picture was not of Asha, then they just think 
not much of it. So they kind of start to think that the candy wrappers and the pencil and the bow and the picture were just swept away and kind of landed there during that rainstorm. Cause mm -hmm. they will say that often they would find debris on their property um, from somewhere else. Uh, the way their property went and the way the gradient of the land was that water would wash other stuff down. So they actually just thought it was unrelated and didn't think much of it. Took the other items, the pencil and the hair bow and all those things, and just picked them up and put them on their like covered front porch for the time being. I think just mm -hmm. not knowing what was going on. So they hung out to those, hung out, uh, or excuse me, hung on to those items, and and that was that. So then investigators kind of continue to extend this search. They've now got a 25 mile um, radius around her home. They've got all point bulletins out. They handed out flyers. They actually even um, set up a, like a um, checkpoint mm -hmm. early on that the next morning, mm -hmm. like on that Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning, I should say, um, around the same time that she had been seen walking so yeah. that they could capture um, or hopefully find any of the people who would normally be taking that highway at that time of morning to ask them questions. So they stopped everyone there. Um, unfortunately, that turned up nothing. No one had seen anything on that early morning of the 14th. So they actually asked Jeff Rupi, that first trucker that called in, the one, if you remember, that went back to try to actually get in contact with her and talk to her. They asked him to um, come on in and take a polygraph. He obliged quickly. He passed. They weren't worried about that. Um, and then he was asked to show them exactly where he had seen her, like physically come show me where you have seen her. So he did. And he pointed out an area that was actually near a field that was owned by the Turner family, where ultimately those other belongings were found. Mm -hmm. The Turners that we just talked about, Rally and Debbie. So that's kind of where they are at this point. But then on February 17th, so just think this is a week. We're just going to kind of picture it in your head like a Monday through Friday. Monday was the 14th when they realized she's missing. Now we're up to Wednesday the 17th. Um, searchers come back onto the Turner's property. They look around. They find the candy wrappers. They found what now Rally and Debbie had picked up and put like on the porch to hang on to. And so, like I said, we have different law enforcement agencies. We have different civilian volunteers. So not all information has been shared across mm. the board with everyone. Um, so the investigators on the property that day didn't know that volunteers had already been on the property prior. And so they come and ask the, the Turners about those candy wrappers and what they had found. And so the Turners then tell them that they'd already been in contact with Cleveland County Sheriff's Department. Stay with me here. Um, and about the photo they'd found. And then this is when they say, oh, yeah, no, we found some of these other items, but we didn't think it mattered. So they want to see those. So the investigators took the rest of those items, those candy wrappers and pencil and bow and all those kinds of things. Um, and these are very specific things. OK, like a specific yellow plastic hair clip, mm -hmm. a specific white 1996, at, you know, Atlanta Olympics pencil. So um, not just a run of the mill pencil and like rubber band. Uh, and they show these to Akila and Harold, and they do confirm these to be belongings of Asha's. So, as you can imagine, now much confusion sets in because we have candy wrappers and her some of her belongings in this outbuilding at the neighbor's house a mile down the street or, you know, a mile away, and, and a photo of an unidentified child. Mm -hmm. Um. 
So now a large team of investigators come. They're like, okay, we're going to search this property more thoroughly. We need to check this out. Keep in mind, though, the Turners were not implicated in any of this. I don't think, I think pretty quickly they were, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't looked at as suspects or anything like that. So um, that's when a canine dog again was brought along, again, unable to detect Asha's scent. Um, and then at night, by nighttime, the only thing they had actually been able to find were more candy wrappers. These happened to be Asha's favorite candy. And um, parents had confirmed that she had gotten these, some will say from the basketball game that they just had on Friday night. Mm -hmm. And some say um, from a Valentine's party Um like the, the weekend prior or like from her grandmother who had given them little care packages. Either way, these, the candy wrappers were believed to be Asha's as well. So now they can't quite figure out what, what landed Asha there. Right. So if you think about the trucker, Jeff Rupi that called in that said that when he went back to check on her, she vanished into a wood line. And that would mm -hmm. be the field that the Turner's own where these belongings were found. But to get from Highway 18, where their property butts up to the road, to where these belongings were found that were Asha's up at that outbuilding, she would have had to cross like I think it was like a some brambles. Um, they call it like a gully or a ditch that was about three feet um, mm -hmm. deep and pretty <laughs> wide and go uphill to get to this outbuilding. OK, and this would have been at around four o'clock in the morning during a downpour in February, no less. So North Carolina stays warm for a long time, but in February at 4 a.m. during the rain pour, the downpour, I'm telling yeah. you it's cold. Yeah. So it would have been a very cold night. Um, so Roy Blanton Sr., the second person that had called in the tip that was with his son, that was the former deputy. He says the one who thought it was a young woman walking instead of like a little girl. He said that he thought the person he saw was wearing a long sleeve white shirt and jeans and tennis mm -hmm. shoes. He didn't describe the white dress. Now, her gown that she wore every night to bed was a long sleeve white gown with red piping and a little teddy bear on the chest. So when Jeff Rupi, the first trucker, calls in and he says a, a white dress, that could easily be that white mm -hmm. um, nightgown. Now, when Roy Blanton says that he saw her in a long sleeve shirt and jeans, that's a little bit different. So with that information, it it gets a little tricky because she did have some of those clothing missing from her dresser um, and you know, s s people will say maybe potentially those could have been in her backpack and she could have changed into them at some point. She did. I think I've neglected to tell you have uh, there were reports that there was a backpack on mm -hmm. this person walking mm -hmm. on the side of the road that the two people called in the tips for. So there's that. So a lot of days go on. Um, finally, I believe on February 20th, the ground search was called off. Um, the case was not closed, but they just kind of now set up a special team to be involved in um, in Asha's case. Good night, Carly. Uh, so a citizen then that same month in February did call in to say that her class had just finished reading Dr. Seuss's um, or excuse me, a, a book called The Whipping Boy. And this tipster called that in because they thought it could be significant because it's about a couple of boys that run away from home. Um, in the idea or event that they thought that Asha had run away from home. Um, 
so that was like a just kind of a rando February tip that came in. So now it turns to March. So in March, her brother and some of her friends were interviewed again. Um, not really anything came from this other than that Aja had been saying that she had some cash in her wallet and she showed it to them on February 10th. But they didn't know where she got the money from. And Harold and Akila say they also are not so sure where she got that money from. So this is where some people will say or speculate that she was being groomed. I think that that's one of the camps here uh, is that she okay. was being groomed and potentially that's mm -hmm. where this money came from. Uh, they put a billboard up with her face and an amount for a reward in March. Um, so this was the next month. Um, evidently, I think that's still there. And Shelby with now with an age progression photo of her on it. Um, so nothing much happens. It's a little quiet for about a year and a half. So almost 18 months go by. And on August 2nd of 2001, there was a man named Terry Fleming, and he was a contractor who would do like commercial grading, like to um, prep like land for roads and things like that. So he does a lot of excavation and these kinds of things. So he was doing some grading work off of Highway 18 um, in a different county. So it's in a neighboring county, Burke County. This is about 30 miles away, about north of where Asha had been seen last. So while he's digging, he found um, a black plastic bag. He kind of left it alone for a while. Um, he'll say that he was used to digging up just random trash and stuff and all of his years of doing that for a job. So after a little while, there's something about it kind of, I don't know, his curiosity got going and he kind of wanted to see what was in that, in that bag. So when he starts to dig into it, he realizes that it was in fact double bags. So it was two black plastic bags and they had inside them a black and beige backpack. Okay, again, this is about 30 miles away. He looked inside the backpack. He saw a, the name of a female. He saw a home phone number written in it. He didn't know who Asha was, though. Okay, so he just gets this double-bagged black trash bag with a backpack inside it with a name and phone number of someone. Uh, but something about it just struck him as odd, and he didn't want to just toss it. So he evidently... Um, wanted to call someone and let them know about what he had seen, but he was working under some big cell towers. So he didn't have service at the time. So he just went on and wrote down the name and phone number that he saw on the bag um, on a piece of paper and put that in his pocket. And then he goes about his day. He was very busy that day. So he gets a little distracted about it and the rest of the evening doesn't think much about it. But the next day he did remember and he showed that piece of paper to his wife and was kind of like, huh, you know, honey, check this out. I found this, you know, backpack yesterday. But the wife, um, I guess the story goes that she gasped when she saw it because she had been paying attention to the news and mm -hmm. knew of the case of little miss missing Asha Degree. And if she was, I mean, immediately floored and told him he needs to call police with that information. So he did. He called them about 10 o'clock in the morning on August 3rd. About 45 minutes later, uh, police from that Burke County secured that site where the backpack had been found. And they go on and get in touch with the Cleveland County Sheriff's Department. They searched the area for about seven hours. Um, they gridded off. They can't really find anything. They they did find randomly another pair, uh, like a um, a pair of khakis, like khaki mm -hmm. pants, men's khaki pants, and some animal bones on top of them. Not Asha's bones, yeah. and nothing to be said of those pants. Those kind of came and went. We haven't heard anything else about it, but it was just kind of a random find. Um, 
unless this is the dump site for whoever this mm-hmm. person, somebody, somebody dumped these, um, this backpack. Yeah. Um, so th- they don't find much, but at this point, obviously they are starting to definitely believe foul play if they didn't before. So we've never known fully the uh, Cleveland County Sheriff's Department has never said fully what all they found in that backpack. They've kept pretty tight lipped with this, which I've always said I really like. Um, They did say that there were clothes in it and mostly just a bunch of Asha's belongings. They did send the the backpack to the FBI in Quantico for extra testing. They did complete the testing in 2003, but we haven't heard anything about what they found there or any kind of matches there. Nothing's been released to the public. So then fast forward a long time. So that all happened in 2000 and 2001 was the backpack. Then in 2018 is when the FBI decided to reveal to the public that there had been a couple of items found in Asha's backpack that didn't belong to her. So one was a book called, it was a Dr. Seuss book called Mr. McGalligot's Pool. Um, I've gone back since to kind of read up on that. I did not. I know one of our listeners, Jen, said that was her favorite book growing up. I didn't read that one growing up. I went back to look at it, though, and um, nothing about that book seems cryptic or like it would be a sign or, you know, anything to do with her disappearance necessarily. They also found a new kids on the block um, nightgown. Now, speaking of trinkets from when we were Mm -hmm. children, um, I actually uh, had the same exact nightgown, but in green. So it's a tiny little white nightgown with new kids on the block on it. And hers had red cap sleeves and a little red ruffle on the bottom um, or lining on the bottom. So the parents say that neither one of these things were hers. And the book was checked out from her school library uh, around just before the time that she went missing. But the school has no record of who checked the book out. Uh, I don't get too hung up on these two items um, unless the FBI has information they're not letting us know. And that's Mm -hmm. why they wanted to show those. Outside of that, I don't think her parents saying these didn't belong to her make a big deal. She had just been at a sleepover. The weekend before, that's mm-hmm. how I look at that. And little girls like, let me borrow your new kid's gown. Like, okay, you yeah. know, and um, or maybe she checked out the book that day. And uh, however, they did it at that school in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe the librarian wasn't there. So she did the stamp and leaves and there's not a record of her personally checking it out. I don't know. Or she borrowed it from a friend, too. Like, mm-hmm. do you get hung up on any of that? No. Mm-hmm. no I mean, not from our outside perspective. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think at the time, I think any new information in a case like this obviously causes stir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it did. But um, excuse me, but I don't know, not a lot to hang up my hat on there unless they say that unless, you know, we know that law enforcement could potentially have significance tied yeah. to those that we just are not aware of. And um, that could be ex- that could be said why they waited so long to to show it either way. So we have over the years a couple of prison inmates who have come forward to offer tips. Now, would you like to offer any insight about just the idea of inmates? I mean, and we'll get specific on what they were, but the idea of inmates offering tips years after, you know, something, a crime has taken place. Yeah. So usually, I mean, career criminals see a lot of crimes occur. They have a lot of Mm -hmm. information, but they don't want to be labeled as a snitch or an informant or it doesn't matter to them in their world okay. until maybe they get caught or they get sentenced to, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, something like that. And then they start to kind of see how things work. People who provide information sometimes are given leniency. 
that's also what we've talked about with can be the problem. You hold, yeah, it, it can be the problem because then the incentive is I know a little bit about this case or I've heard something about it. Now I can just give you a bunch of information that sounds like it's going to help. Now I want, you know, a sentence reduction mm. and it could, could be complete BS. Mm -hmm. That's why we also hold on to very specific details so that when someone does come forward, either an informant, a, a prisoner, somebody in the public, you can check that source and go, yeah, but this is not credible information mm -hmm. or okay, let's check it out and we'll, sure. we'll see what happens. And maybe it is credible. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. So the first one um, came in February of 2001, evidently. Uh, so about just a year after Asha went missing, an inmate who was actually a former classmate of um, Akilah's, Asha's mother, his name is Baron Ramsey, and he called the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office and the Charlotte Observer. So I don't know what your thoughts are when they call the newspaper, too. Um, but mm -hmm. he said that Asha was dead and he knew where her body was. <clears throat> uh, he said that in the early morning of February 14th, that he and another Cleveland County man were driving on Highway 18 in a pickup truck heading back to Shelby after buying drugs in Hickory, North Carolina. Um, that's another thing that you and I have talked about. Sometimes tips are withheld because it can connect them to another crime that yeah. they don't want to disclose. Right. <clears throat> um, so they've been buying drugs in Hickory and they were heading back to Shelby. He said that they actually accidentally hit someone. He says now that it's Asha while she was trying to, uh, while she was trying to cross the road. Hey, Tammy. Baron said that Asha was still alive after she was hit, but that she was unconscious. So he said that the other guy had got out, picked Asha up, threw her in the back of the truck, and they drove off. He said at this point, he was dropped off at his house and the other man left with Asha still being in the bed of the truck. But he said that later on, uh, Asha had died. Uh, he wasn't there for that part, but she had died and he went with this other man and they tossed her body in a nearby lake called Moss Lake. So evidently investigators look into this story, but they didn't find any evidence that it was true. Um, they say there was no evidence of a hit and run on Highway 18, but, you know, if they weren't looking for evidence of a hit and run on highway 18 and there was minimal damage because maybe it was the side mirror of the truck mm -hmm. and she's a small child yes. and a piece of a side view mirror or something pops mm -hmm. off into the ditch. I don't, that's not what they're looking for. So I, I don't, to me, I'm not hung up on the fact that uh, there was no evidence of a hit and run a year yeah. prior right. yeah. uh, at all. But they did say that Moss Lake was dragged twice and searched by divers who found nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know if this was prior to him saying this, mm -hmm. from what I understand, it sounds like it was upon him saying this, that they dragged the lake twice and found nothing. Okay. Um, let me interrupt. I was going to actually ask you, go ahead. It, one of the ways you could check something like that is he, the source, the, the inmate is putting himself there. We threw her into okay. Moss Lake or whatever. You would then want to know more details. How, in fact, did y'all do it? Okay. Did you just simply... Did you drive your truck to it? Did you... Well, did you use anything to weight her okay. down? Did you put her in any type of container? Did you do... 
because the human body eventually the gases and right. it's, it's going to float and usually it's a couple of days after it sinks so if he just says we tossed her in there then you would think but nobody saw a body floating right. and whatever like and that so, it was probably and when not. you say lake we could be thinking a huge lake true like the one we st stayed at yes over the weekend that was absolutely amazing um or you tell me lake and i'm picturing something when i was a kid that's kind of stagnant too some people call it a pond but you know the more stagnant the water the more you wouldn't have you know moss lake the, right okay but you wouldn't have the um the body potentially right. drifting somewhere into a tributary or a creek yeah. or something like that um but yeah any any information like that um and i mean there are certain bodies of water that when you do start doing, you know, <clears throat> water recovery, you, you can miss things very, very easily. Um, so a lot of times when people say we did search, we didn't find anything, depending on how large that body of water is, you, you can miss something. Sure. Yeah. So it's actually, it looks like it's got 57 miles of shoreline mm -hmm. and 1,660 acres of water. Okay. So it's a very, so it's a large lake. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he was. Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's like. So more than likely, unless they have a boat, even a little John boat or something, they'd have to do. And it if he said that line. they didn't specify it. Correct. Right. It's so much different. Got 57 when, miles of shoreline. Right. And it's much different when someone says, Oh, oh the, the firearm or whatever, like that we used. Oh yeah. I threw it in the lake. And then you're like, it could be anywhere. And once that pistol sinks, it's going to stay gone. You know what I mean? Like you've got to search the surface of a lake, but looking for a body, I mean, that's. So if different. he stated, if he, if he told law enforcement that they um, did anything to uh, weight her down, mm -hmm. it's not noted to us. Right. So I will yeah. say that if he mm -hmm. said that they did, it's not noted to us. Uh, you know, I don't know. So guys take that one as you will. But they say that he was actually facing federal charges for bank robbery at this time. And they say that he was attempting to use that mission as leverage in order to try to get a plea deal. Um, and law enforcement doesn't believe he was telling the truth. Of course he was trying to get a plea deal. Right. That, yeah. why, why else would he put right. himself as disposing of a body? Like, yes. I, yeah. So I don't think it's wrong that he would have been. Yeah. You know. So in that situation, too, you'd have to be like, okay, this person's now you know, going to federal prison on, you know, a, a, apparently like a bank robbery conviction or plea or whatever, but now is implicating himself into a murder yeah. or, or at least the disposing of a body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we also don't know anything about that person. No, we could totally be lying, yeah. but I think that just well, based off of the information that we have, I don't think that it, it discounts him at this mm -hmm. point, you know, just on what we know. Right. Yes. Um, I wouldn't, throw that away yep so another prison inmate uh was a bit more recent quite a bit more recent in fact in 2020 i think it was november of 2020 a convicted pedophile uh named marcus mellon wrote a letter to the news outlet the star which we know people do this but that's super weird to me like if you have pertinent information just call mm -hmm. law enforcement like why are mm -hmm. we writing a newspaper unless he thinks it'll garner more buzz he said that he knew what happened to asha he knew where to find her and he asked that it be passed on to the FBI. 
he wrote, quote, I'll read you what he said. Asha Degree has been missing for over 20 years. About four months ago, I found out her whereabouts and what had happened to her. She was killed and then took and buried. I do know how and what town she is in. I hope you get this letter and do come see me. It's on the up and up. I mean, so, okay, so that was his letter. Evidently, there were plans for law enforcement to interview him shortly after receiving this letter. Uh, but then the COVID outbreak happened in the jail. Um, he was in the Alexander Correctional Institute. So it, they didn't interview him till months later. He's actually dead now. Uh, he died in jail. But they say that that he didn't have firsthand information that they considered reliable. His second cousin, um, Terry, I believe, Mellon, uh, both were in jail for illicit acts or sex crimes with minors, one being a four-year-old, I believe. So these are some pretty dirty dudes already. Um, but take it for what you will. That was another tip that came through. He may have also like heard secondhand information of someone who confessed it. Like, hey, I was driving. I did, in fact, hit a girl. I got rid of her and just kind of got it off their chest. And he hears about it. But the only way he can get credit, so to speak, or be credible is to put himself into the story of right. like, yes, this is what we did. So there's still, I mean, I'm not saying they were wrong or anything. I'm just saying in general, yeah. when people provide information, sometimes they'll stretch it a little bit to put themselves in it to make it more credible. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so that was 2020, but we're going to backtrack a bit to May of 2016. Cleveland County Sheriff's Office, FBI, they said that they had some new information from a 2015 reinvestigation of Asha's case. So people had been calling in tips and we know we talk about this every week. There's a multitude of tips coming in that they have to weed through, but they have to follow up on everything. Right. So evidently there was a girl, there was a tip that said a girl matching Asha's description had been seen on the night of February 14th, 2000 getting into a dark, green car around the area where Asha had been last seen. The Cleveland County Sheriff's Office announced that this was actually a vehicle of interest. If you go on the FBI's website and search Asha Degree or backward, you're going to find exactly this. And they show examples of what this car would look like. Um, they say that this car was carrying two passengers the night that Asha disappeared. Uh, they described the car as an early 70s model of a Ford Thunderbird or a Lincoln Mark IV, um, which had rust around the wheel wells. Now, we've talked about this, and I find it interesting because if it's 4 o'clock in the morning and it's pouring down rain and I'm not expecting to see anything, particularly a crime or something weird taking place with a child in the middle of the night, and there's a little girl getting in a car, you know, and later I realized that it's, something because there's a girl missing and i remember oh i saw a girl getting in a car mm -hmm. it was maybe this maybe a 70s model green car maybe i know cars well and i can say it was probably one of these two makes and models did i also see rust on the wheel well and and if could i physically see it with the rainstorm in the middle of the night mm -hmm. and did it make an impression on me to remember that i saw that mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. if you're stopped at a stop sign and this car stops in front of you and a girl gets in and, you know, maybe. But um, I thought that was some interesting detail. So also, though, uh, an early 70s model of either one of those two cars would be notable cars in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So um, 
mean, yes. they just stand out. Yeah, yeah. because it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's almost 30 yeah. years later. So it's going to be a car that's distinguishable in that sense. Bosco's commenting saying the T-Bird Mark IV and Cougars are all the same platform. Bosco, I actually think I remember you commenting on this car. Um, the last time that I covered this case, Bosco has a podcast um, that he talks about cars and music right mm -hmm. and it's um forever it's the forever podcast. road podcast and, and he, he yeah he, i like interrupt he ties down you're all good and he talks about cars and music so bosco will pipe in with the with the car information you're exactly right uh so they say that that was the tip about the little girl coming you know getting into this car and so people are kind of in different camps on this they'll say mm -hmm. you know i i don't think that green car has anything to do with anything um, keep in mind, this was released to the public in 2016, I think. Yes, in 2016. So evidently, I, I've heard, I've read two different types of sources on this that say, evidently, this tip was called in much closer to the time, like it wasn't called in in 2016 when the public got notified of it. Okay. The tip was called in actually much closer to Asha's disappearance in 2000. Um, there are two camps. Some will say that this tip got overlooked until 2016 and mm -hmm. it was brought to the public's attention. Um, and then some will say that just they held it close mm -hmm. as they did with some other details. And then they deemed it necessary to bring it to the public's attention. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because we didn't know about it till 2016. However, that went if it was because they chose to do that or not. Um, either way, you know, again, mm -hmm. take it for what you will. Now, I will say, uh, and we'll talk about why in a moment, but the guy that talked about accidentally hitting her with the truck. I'm more interested in that than I am in this green car. But the FBI does seem to think that this tip is credible enough to put it on their website and to continue to talk about it. So mm -hmm. they could have information about this car or the idea, you know, whatever surrounding this car that, um, you know, that we don't know. So there may be a reason they're putting that out there. Yeah. And they may have <clears throat> held the tip in the beginning because their search or however they were leading their investigation, looking for this very specific car, mm -hmm. they may have thought they had identified it or the owner or whatever. And they didn't want to release that information until they could find that person. Flash forward six months to a year later, they're able to interview that person or locate them and then rule them out. Then by then, you know, things have moved on. Someone's still working the case, but they may okay. not have felt like, Oh, we need to put this back out in the public until years later, maybe when someone either wants to do a press release or someone's you know, an agency's approached and they say, yeah, we do have this tip and it's not going to hurt anything if we release this to the public. Yeah. Yeah. Or it can be overlooked if they get inundated with, you know, and depending on the department too. I mean, mm -hmm. Shelby is also a solid area. I met a detective there years ago at a conference who did a social media um, presentation. It's incredible. So um, oftentimes people say, oh, it's a small department and have resources. Well, clearly they yeah. had resources and they yeah, utilized they them. Very locked in. Very so, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just I would say like that, like if you get 30 or 40 tips and you're trying to follow them through, but you're, you've also got to stay focused on what you have right in front of you. Right. Then sometimes you're like, OK, hey, we're just going to hang on to these tips. Like They're vague. If she gets in a green car, but we also have this information that, you know, she's walking in this area. We're trying to work it. We'll come back to that. Or, yeah, you know, 
we've got somebody already trying to track down that car or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's that. And that, that tip, like I said, that's FBI is considering that current, they are still working that angle with the, mm -hmm. with the green, with the green car. Um, so, I mean, as you can suspect, this is a nine-year-old child. So this does seem to be some sort of a victim of foul play. Um, you know, we have a lot of different thoughts or different people who come come up with these thoughts and theories of what mm -hmm. might have happened. Uh, one of the things I'll read is that, you know, her parents were strict and she ran away. I call garbage on that yeah. um, there because there didn't seem to be like, I don't know, any any backlash or any weirdness about her parents being strict whatsoever. Some will if I, if you remember, I said to keep that in your head, we'll come back to it. Uh, some will say she got so upset at that basketball game that she, you know, wanted to run away. Yeah. Like she, all accounts were that she was just fine and eating candy and happy before they left. That was fine. Keep in mind, it's important to know what a child is like or what an adult is like or what anything is normally like when something like this happens <clears> because she was, like I said, known to be extremely afraid of thunderstorms and the dark. So if this child were to just want to run away I can't imagine something egregious enough happening to where she's going to leave. First of all, if you think about the tips that were called in um, that almost seem verifiable because the, the first guy, Jeff Ruby pinpointed mm -hmm. a location that butted up to the field where her belongings were found. So in all accounts, it sounds like what he was saying was true. And she, he described a white nightgown essentially. So if she was going to leave in her nightgown in pouring rain cold in the middle of the night where she's scared of thunderstorms. She's scared of rain. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that she left of her own accord. Um, you'll hear people talking about her being groomed. So that's where the car comes in that, mm -hmm. you know, there are some camps that um, some people will say her basketball coach had some, mm -hmm. some people will say there was um, I think the preacher's son, there was something about an uncle who might've driven a car similar to this. I can only assume that if the FBI has this car mm -hmm. on their tip page, and her uncle had a car similar right. to that. That's yeah. been handled, worked, whatever. Like, I, yeah. you know, that's not that's not a thing. So, uh, I know I kind of came to a working theory about this the first time I covered the case. You and I have been talking about it a bit more since, mm -hmm. or since that time. But, um, you know, before we start talking about maybe our theories, what do you have any? Anything else to add? Anything before? else to add? Because I've talked this whole time. No, I don't. I'm itching to talk about. Well, I will just say when you're working missing persons and you mentioned that about, it's basically like the pattern of behavior. You yes. want to know what their baseline is, like what their daily routine is. And then especially anything out of the ordinary, just like this, where a child is missing in the middle of the night, not like going to school and then never right. shows up or going to the corner store and then they never make it back. This is the middle of the night and there's no signs of forced entry nor any, any type of entry. Um, and then they start working it and everything is out of her normal behavior. Right. She was not a habitual runaway. She didn't appear nope. to be any kind of disciplinary problem. She's getting rewarded at school for, for her good behavior. She's afraid of thunderstorms. It's cold. It's February. It's North Carolina and it's raining and it's late at night. So all of that is actually, it appears counter to what her normal pattern of behavior is. Right. Which is also why you probably saw so many resources being pumped in very quickly because, hey, this all looks very legit. 
and this child has now left this home or is, is outside of the home somewhere. Right. And now you got to find her. So, what, so do you think? what do you think? So I don't know. I've come around to the doors were locked. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so if, if no one forced their way in, but mm -hmm. she exited the house, mm -hmm. she would have had to lock the door behind her. Yes, it's very. It'll be the only, to see the, what the only, lock is like. yeah. And she carried a key because yeah. she and her brother would come home from the bus mm -hmm. and come home alone before mom and dad got home from work mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. The only other thought to that would be that at some point in the middle of the night, mom or dad get up, use the restroom, walk through the house, notice the doors unlocked, check the doors and lock the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and she's already been gone, and they don't. She's already left the house, and they don't yeah. know it. And it, yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's also not like a statement on that where mom mm -hmm. says, oh, no, I got up at 445 before I got up at 545 to wake the kids up. I got up at 445 and locked the doors, you know, yeah. so it everything kind of sounds like mm -hmm. potentially if Asha left, she locked the door behind her. Um, we also have things that we do out of habit. habit. So if she's carrying a key and she goes on her backpack in and out. Mm hmm. So she would have the key with her on her backpack. Yeah. Potentially. I know when I was a kid, when I left the house, I locked it. Yeah. My brother, maybe not. Yeah. You know, he may have a different pattern. Yes. I would lock my door. And then when I came back, obviously use my key to get back in. Um, so I've told you before, I've only had one sleep, mm -hmm. sleepwalking incident. And it was when I had a fever and I actually was able to get out of my house and three homes down. Uh, and, and woke up and still was scared to go back to my house because of the fever. And my nightmare was that my brother was going to harm me. So I sat down and fell back asleep under the under the carport. And then another neighbor saw me, picked me up and put me in their home. Mm -hmm. And then when I woke up, my mom was in their home trying to get me back to the house. It's completely scary to me because I was about her age. I was around that age, yeah. maybe a little bit younger. Um, but I was able to navigate between a long push mower and my mom's car and all this stuff without waking up um, and then walk across gravel barefoot uh, and then down the street and, and still not wake up. So mm -hmm. it probably took me a minute or two yep. to walk down the street. So if you constant. can't guess, that's kind of the running theory here. That's it's what we've discussed. It's kind of in my thoughts. Now we've had other sleepwalking cases before, where someone tried to use it in defense of a murder. Right. Yeah. But we got to talking about the idea of sleep science and like what that looks like. And she was, remember, exhausted. She had a basketball game Friday night, a full day Saturday, um, a, a sleep over Saturday night where she and her girlfriends and cousins were awake much of the night, straight to church on Sunday, you know, and then falls asleep in her bed on Sunday evening at 6.30 p.m., awoken by a thunderstorm at 8.30, got scared, went to the living room, falls asleep on the couch there, you know. So she, her pattern of sleep was very, very off. And we know we do know that with sleepwalking, it can occur, even if it's never occurred before. Like BC mm -hmm. said, his first time was around nine years old. Um, and he had a fever and his sleep pattern was off. So um, there's like some stress on the body there. She was sleep deprived and exhausted. Uh, this would make sense that um, she could easily be a candidate for sleepwalking at that time. So we have learned that with sleepwalking, your routine, like concrete things happen. Weird stuff can happen, but like normal things, like 
her, if she got up and put a backpack on her back and walked out the front door and locked it behind her, that would be very similar to her leaving in the morning for school and throwing her backpack on and locking a door behind her. Obviously, we don't know what happened to this poor child. We don't know how it happened. But, you know, as we talk about it, this is something that could make sense. Uh, she heads off on the road and just starts walking. Uh, and then, you know, you've got the piece of her belongings and her candy wrappers being in that shed, the outbuilding, mm -hmm. um, you know, on that property about a mile away from her home. And so I think that as we've spoken about it, what sounds reasonable is that she could have been sleepwalking. Uh, that would explain why the first truck said, uh, you know, he said, no, I went back like twice to try to get her attention. Mm -hmm. And the last time she took off in the woods, that to me sounds like if she woke up. Mm -hmm. So, but the yeah. first couple of times he said that she had her, her eyes were set straight and she looked like she was on a mission. Like she wasn't like flinching or like trying to get away from the side of the road when he's flashing his lights and like calling out her name. So to me, it sounds like she was, could have been sleepwalking during that time and that last time is when she might have woken up because now he's on the same road as she is like he's not going in the opposite direction he's right there where she is uh and she flees toward the wood line because now she wakes up and she's terrified you i mm -hmm. mean i can imagine how terrified she would be to wake up not in her own bed and on a road and probably not know exactly where she is in the dark uh in the middle of the night in a rainstorm so it makes sense mm -hmm. that she finds shelter um and eats candy maybe even that she put on a different set of clothes that was in her backpack because yeah. she opens her backpack and gets her candy mm -hmm. um but like you said you woke up a couple of times during that sleepwalking incident yeah. and you remember waking up in the thoughts you had but you still weren't quite too like you still weren't quite um of coherent mind yeah so mm -hmm. if she wakes up and opens a backpack and is eating candy wrappers and like her belongings are falling out you know, ultimately, it, ultimately, it sounds like that could have happened. And then she she fully wakes up at some point and maybe that's when she gets on the road and then something happens. Now, there are theories that when Roy Blanton, the former deputy that was with his son, that was the second tip that was called in as a trucker. They did not go back and check on her, because if you remember, he thought she was a um, a young woman or maybe a domestic. You know, he didn't think it was a child on the road. So they didn't really call They didn't think much about it, but they did call it in on the walkie like, hey, a uh, small person, young woman walking on the side of the road. Please be, you know, be careful that you don't basically run over her in this mm -hmm. rainstorm. So there are some people in a camp that think that with that call um, that essentially could have alerted a predatory truck driver toward her direction. OK, yeah, um, I, I never thought of that. Yeah. So you know, kind of an, an all call for anybody who could be a bad guy, I guess, in that sense. Um, otherwise, I, I don't find that hit and run or the hit and take theory off the table. Again, right. we don't know this guy. You're right. Like, he could be a habitual liar. He could be whatever, you know. Um, or he heard a portion. You know what I mean? Like, he correct. heard that. Correct. Or that could have still happened and just not with him. Right. I think that could have yeah. happened easily that she was hit. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, I think that my the only thing that doesn't make sense in terms of coincidence here is that. People do bad things all the time. We know that. But just on that kind of rural highway at that time of the morning, 
you know, the coincidence that it would be that this girl is walking down the highway and then someone who's going to do something bad <laughs> to the child is yeah. also driving down the highway at that same time. Um, but then we have the green car piece. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you track down everything you can. Yeah. So, um, but the hit and run, I mean, the average citizen doesn't know how many hit and runs occur. Like it's just, it's usually just not part of your, whatever your, your idea yeah. of crimes being committed, but All on time. patrol, I had to, I had to work, you know, my own hit and runs. Um, <laughs> and you get a lot because people don't have insurance. They don't have a license. Um, people are in the country illegally. You know what I mean? People mm -hmm. have warrants. So as soon as a, any kind of car crash occurs and then people take that car and just drive off. And then you find out, you know, there are other cases where people have been hit, like fatal hit and runs, and then the people flee because of alcohol use or drug use, or they're committing another crime or they're doing something else. Yeah. And they don't want, you know, they don't they don't want to be detected. So yeah. it could be like a side mirror, even that somebody, a truck or something strikes a person and they don't even know they hit the person, they're not paying attention. Yeah. But you know, if you're usually if you're that close to someone walking on the street, you at least notice them. You do. Yeah. I mean, and I would argue that if you're in a big truck, which could be on a highway at 4 a.m., that would make sense, like a delivery type truck. Mm -hmm. um, you may not notice that you hit. Um, yeah. But also, if it's a small nine year old girl, your side mirror is probably not. Uh, you're going to notice if you run over her, I'm saying. Right. And your side mirror is probably taller than her head. So it's probably something more like a pickup truck in that case. Yeah. And then you've got damage to the truck. So, and you've also got the bed of a truck where you potentially. But she could. didn't die initially either, so it could have been minimal damage to the truck mm -hmm. already. And this was the year two thousand, I think. You know, there were still a lot of vehicles, particularly trucks in Shelby, North Carolina. I would venture to say could have been in the eighties and nineties models already, mm -hmm. meaning less plastic on the vehicle, yeah, more metal, yeah. more. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So probably less damage then to a vehicle in that scenario than we would see now. Mm -hmm. And doing so those, maybe not yeah. anything that anybody would even see on somebody's truck and think twice about. I mean, true. Meaning like if, if, if you're the person driving and you strike somebody and you look at your car and there's no damage and no one's around, you don't uh, want to hang on to I the person. So you want to just get, well, which per, is per his yeah. tip. They, they took her though. Right. And that's, that's what I was going to say. Uh, again, I like to interrupt you, but, no, I but it could be me. something like that where the damage was more severe. So in the fact of if he now, felt he needed, yeah, if you have the pickup and you have the ability and you put her in the back and then you take off horribly, they, you know, discard her or, or, or hide her or whatever they do to the body that can't be found then they can create whatever kind of story they want to about the truck. If they even have to, Yeah. if the person owns the truck, then they really don't have to answer anybody. If they borrow the truck, you know, or whatever vehicle, if it is in fact a hit and run, they have to create a story now for why there's, I don't think people are asking like, okay, if that tip about the, the hit and run or the hit and take mm -hmm. pickup truck, if that's accurate, you know, they just come to get some drugs from Hickory. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. anybody's asking them anything about their truck, you know, assuming mm -hmm. it's their truck, you know, yeah. his personally. Then That's um, what I mean. But like if, if the driver borrowed, borrowed it from it, a yeah. grandparent or somebody or a mother or whatever, a cousin, now they bring it back busted. You hit it here. They have to, yeah, they have to create a story. And then the story hits the news of 
a missing girl, then now that person who owns the vehicle in the criminal world yeah. is now potentially someone who's going to inform on you. So it, it can get it can get crazy okay. like that when it's just. Well, so then, what's your thought before we wrap up? It's getting it's getting Sorry. long here. Uh, no, don't. I'll what's your thought on the that. green? But on the green car, like, what's your thought on the FBI putting that one out there? I, I don't know. People, um, if if it's an accurate witness, um, do you like feel like know? there's something credible about it to have the FBI deem it necessary to put it out to the public. Cause they really haven't put a lot out to the public. Yeah, we still don't I, know everything in the backpack. We, you know, yeah. there are some things we still don't know. It's not like some cases right. where it's all out there. So yeah, I would say if you're putting a tip back out there this many years later, when you're working the case that, that the agency or the lead detective, you know, does believe it's credible or at least not credible, but you can't, Throw it away. Um, yeah, disprove it or anything like that. And you go, okay, well, I still have to follow well, up. Well, I still yeah. think that the first half of our theory could stand. I think that she could have been sleepwalking. She could have found herself under that shelter at some point, kind of come to more of a you know, conscious state of mind, uh, eating the candy. She's terrified. It's raining. She's cold. She might have changed clothes. And then she gets back on the road to go home, try to figure out where she is. Yeah. And yeah. then somebody says, let me help you. Oh, do you mm -hmm. need a ride home? Yeah. Um, even though she was terrified of strangers, it's still the middle of the night. Like mm -hmm. a, a kid, I'm going to be more scared of the dark and the rain walking yes. alone than I am the comfort of someone who seems kind. That's letting me, that's going to take me home. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit older than that, I would jump in the car sometimes walking home from work Stop. And, and it was stupid, but I carried a box cutter. So I just assumed I'm good to go. But I mean, yeah, that, because you don't, you get tired of walking. It's raining. One guy picked me up and he's like, I'm a soldier. I'm getting back to Fort Bragg. I just got to stay awake. And yeah. I'm like, cool. Drive me down here. But you were also away. a boy. She was a nine-year-old girl right. who and was I, scared. I was going to say, I was probably 15 then. Yeah. Um, and nine and 15, boy and girl is very, very different. She was yeah. scared. But like again, I would venture to say her. she would be more frightened of being alone in the dark, in the rain, yes. yeah. than in a car of a stranger. We do know that uh, serial offenders do cruise. And if it's a highway, it's, it is possible. The yeah. worst case scenario of something like that. Um, but yeah, I, and obviously we're or not, just, you know, potentially looking for a more high risk victim. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, but the, and I mean, the sadly, all of that seems to make sense based on what we have of her sleepwalking and eating candy. And then I can't find any other scenario because it all comes back to how did she leave or why did she leave the home? And none of that, if it were a July night and no rain, mm -hmm. I, I could maybe, you could argue more to me that she left willingly for some reason that we don't know. Yeah. Um. But this doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense. But you guys let us know. Um. So pop on, you can pop on YouTube, make a comment on there. You can go on Instagram, whatever. I do want to hear your thoughts. Um, uh, once this live show is over. So come back and let us know. Um, this is a wild. Yeah. We've got, a, we've got a listener Bosco in the chat saying that someone took advantage of her being out there, a predator. And you know, it's a good point that people, like you said, BC that people do cruise. And unfortunately mm -hmm. she could have just happened to be somewhere um, at the wrong time, but uh, let us know what you think and um, what you got going on. Anything you want to tell everybody? I'm still doing um, classes. So I'll post classes coming up. I'm probably going to do Chicago gangs and origins. So that'll be okay. 
two-hour block on Gangster Disciples, Latin Kings, Vice Lords, Maniac Latin Disciples. Um, so if that's something you guys are interested in, BC does those classes. Um, virtually, there will be some uh, in-person opportunities as well, but he does cover those virtually. It's pretty easy to sign up for him. He'll throw them out on his story on BC Sanders or the Disruptors podcast with BC and yeah, White Pride Gangs. Okay. A lot of interest in that. So I'll okay. go through the history of some of the signs and symbols and then what their current evolution is, where you're actually merging. Davey said he was yeah. about to ask you when your next class was. Davey is one of our listeners and he took one of BC's classes. And I think, I think he had a good time, right, Davey? I think I it did. sounds like. Oh. <laughs> no, no, you had no, a good he was, time. He was solid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He and Carly, I think Carly logged off earlier. Yeah, um, but Carly they were, was they were in it too. Yeah. So I'll do I'll do the white pride gangs and I, I've done it before for an entire agency mm -hmm. on a smaller level from the chief all the way to the rookie. Um, and it was, it was a pretty good class. I, I had fun. And I think a lot of people then it opens up a lot of questions. Sure. But that's for citizens and sworn. Yeah. So, so anyone who follows me or um, shoots me an email or whatever, then yeah, they can sign up. They don't, they, it does, it's not just law enforcement specific. Yeah, I definitely know that it's civilians as well. So, yeah. um, so these are some fun classes. He's got different topics, like he said, Bosco, he's gonna put them in his stories, mm -hmm. um, on probably on BC Sanders and on the disruptors, um, Instagram stories. So you can find those there when they get lined up. Um, and hoodies, are your hoodies still for sale? Yeah. Hoodies should still be up and so, t-shirts, even you, though some have been mailed out. Uh, I checked the other day, the links are still good. On, okay. So yeah. if you guys go to minorleaguestudios.com, our buddy, Bill Schofield is our, um, pretty cool merch guy. He does a lot of good things. And so he just put out some, um, hoodies and t-shirts that BC designed and the hoodies are pretty cool. Cause they're up like a, they're not super mm -hmm. thick. They're a little thinner yeah, on the thinner side. So they're really comfy. The mm -hmm. pretty cool. So you'll have to check those out. But um, so you can go follow BC, like I said, um, on Instagram at that name, BC Sanders. Also, uh, Disruptors Podcast with BC and Ski. They also have a YouTube channel at the same name. Follow me at uh, Andrea Uplate channel on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button, y'all. You're doing it and I appreciate it. Uh, and we are slowly but surely growing for season two. It's free to hit it. So just do it, like hit it, download it, do all the things on whatever. And so once this um, once this show is done tonight, it will drop and you can listen to it wherever you stream podcast on Night Shift with Andrea up late. Uh, so we are so pumped to see you guys again this week and we'll see what we do, what we do next week. But until then, I guess we can hold up. Have you thought about, we've got someone in the chat asking, have we thought about bringing Ski on? You mean here tonight, Shift? Yeah. I think yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 He's always welcome on here. We actually just talking to him a little bit earlier today. Yeah. 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 It was just, a, it, <laughs> our schedules are absolutely crazy right now. So there have been some questions about, I've done a few episodes with, without Ski, unfortunately. Uh, but we're he's jumping, still around. Yeah. He's still around. We were talking to him on the phone earlier today. Uh, he's got a lot of really cool stuff lined up that we'll talk about here in uh, probably about two weeks. We're going to jump on and do some recordings, um, probably record an episode before the end of the week uh, with Zeke Stout. So, yeah, that'll be a solo one. But, yeah, Ski will jump back in. Very cool. Very cool. Yep. So, yes, of course, um, we'd love to have Ski on anytime at all. And... 
so it's a delay for work tomorrow, which is nice. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I get to go into work a little bit later tomorrow, y'all. Yeah. But I hope you guys are doing good. Um, Bosco, I would love to be on. Oh, Bosco mm -hmm. told me a cool story, and he wants to be on and talk about that. You guys, we do. <laughs> Look at Silly. Um, you do have the option if you ever want to be a co-host on here that's kind of you know it's not an every week thing but every now and then it's an option that we bring out and it's kind of fun to get different perspectives a lot of you do throw out great ideas for shows in different cases um and sometimes they're ones i've never heard of and it's you know super interesting so yeah bosco we need to chat about it we can we can chat on the phone a little bit about it beforehand and figure that out um and silly mander just wants you to actually drop a new Disruptors. I've got one, uh, and I'll probably drop it tonight. Tonight, just, just we'll tonight. do it tonight. Tonight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, we appreciate you guys. Love you so much. Um, go to Instagram at Andrea up late tomorrow, and you'll be able to see all the pictures that pertain to this case and some more narrative there. Uh, but we appreciate your engagement and your involvement here, and just all your support. So I guess until then, we will see y'all next Tuesday. And then we sit and wait and wait. Mm -hmm. <laughs>